Hello and welcome to South Asia Chat, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. I'm your host Ramita Ayer, research analyst at the institute. All through this month, we're running a special South Asia Outlook 2022 series that focuses on changes and challenges this year for each South Asian country. In this episode, I have with me Dr. Shenjoy Bose, senior lecturer in international relations and politics at the University of New South Wales. His research focuses on critical peace studies including political order and violence and state formation and democratization in fragile states and societies. In this episode, he will be discussing the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan, the crisis that unfolded and regional implications. Welcome to South Asia Chat Dr. Bose. Thanks Ramita, thanks for having me. So the Taliban came to power in Afghanistan in August 2021. But no country so far has given it legal recognition. Uh, on the domestic front too there seems to ha- have been some issues as there have been reports of divisions within the Taliban leadership. Can you give us a sense of what has happened since the takeover, how Taliban has dealt with this opposition and where does the Taliban stand today? Right. Okay, so that's a <laughs> that's a fair few months worth of events that I'll try to summarize for your listeners. So, in the immediate aftermath of the ta- Taliban takeover, obviously the dynamics on the ground were unclear, they were in flux, and really the Taliban were focused on consolidating their return to power. Yes, there were some divisions that appeared to be simmering um much of it was pointed at or directed at the vision for Afghanistan uh going forward right so the messages that i was receiving from the ground was that there were certain figures within the Taliban who perhaps wanted to advance and promote a slightly more conciliatory approach in terms of the Taliban's engagement both with the international community and with her citizens at large those simmering divisions uh, didn't come to much um uh, the Taliban either denied the reports of those divisions and those individuals whom they might have perceived as threatening or troublemaking troublesome um they very quickly sidelined them including a very high level uh delegate who had been leading the uh negotiations with the Americans in Doha and Qatar so they quickly acted to either silence any a reporting of uh, divisions because it would under, undermine their uh, position understandably and they uh, si- sidelined these uh, perceived uh, uh, troublemakers um the other uh, direction of uh, opposition came from you know that uh, small band of um you know uh, 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 people who want to resist the Taliban uh, takeover uh you know uh, uh followers and acolytes of uh, um Ahmad Masood um 
and, and so on and so forth. Um, they hold up in uh, the province of Panjshir, the heart of, you know, uh, the former resistance um, from decades ago. Um, they held out for about a month. They were completely surrounded. Uh, there was talk of them uh, launching a resistance from uh, Panjshir, but no one really took them seriously in the sense that they they weren't in a position to do much. Uh, certainly not without international direct international military support. Um, them being uh, surrounded by the Taliban, etc., etc. The Taliban had completely cut them off. Um, uh, it, it, road access, goods provision access, uh, internet access—they they were completely cut, cut off. Um, so that resistance they held up for about a month or so, and then they quickly uh, crumbled. Uh, the leading figures uh, left uh, Panjshir and the country, indeed, and took refuge. Uh, in uh, countries overseas, so uh, Masood and uh, Ishmael Khan, for example, who had left earlier, fled to Iran, right? Um, so that's as far as the opposition slash divisions issue is concerned. So, so what does that mean for now? Uh, the Taliban are firmly in control of the country, uh, five months out after uh, the, uh, the Taliban takeover in August. So that's where we stand uh, as far as the Taliban is concerned. So one other thing that we've seen since the Taliban's takeover is that the economy has been doing very badly. Uh, President Joe Biden said in August that the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan would not mean the end of U.S. support to Afghan people. But the policies of the U.S. and other Western countries have largely been based on sanctions and isolation. What are your thoughts on the economic crisis that is unfolding in Afghanistan and what has motivated this decision by Western countries and how, how do you see Kabul coping with it? Right. Okay. So I think the first thing to understand is that um, Afghanistan's economy has been in free fall for quite a long time. They've been in the midst of an economic crisis for the better part of a decade, decade and a half. Um, so it's it, it's an it's an ongoing situation, and obviously we speak we might just speak about the humanitarian crisis as well, uh, which dovetails with the economic crisis. But as far as the econ the economic uh, sector is concerned, uh, yes, they're not doing too well. In the lead up to the Taliban takeover, and in the months and year and a half spanning the American negotiations with the Taliban, obviously the system couldn't cope. Uh, there was a lot of uh, uncertainty and precarity. There was capital flight. Obviously, invest investors were fleeing um, uh, the country, uh, knowing that the Americans were going to leave the country. Um, uh, there was apprehension that they, if the Americans leave, obviously, you know, uh, the country could topple to Taliban and so on and so forth. So we saw capital flight. Again, capital flight had, had been happening for a very long time in Afghanistan due to the deteriorating security uh, situation. It just um, increased in the months lead up to uh, uh, the fall of Kabul. Um, so investors were leaving. Uh, people were leaving. You know, the, Afghanistan has been experiencing what we've come to call the brain drain, right, um, for a very long time. Uh, so... Um, uh, refugee asylum uh, seeking has obviously increased. Uh, pe people have been applying for visas in overseas countries for a very long time. And Afghanistan has been losing, you know, uh, 
it's um, peoples who they need to take the country forward, right, across sector, sectors and industries. Um, so it's been in free fall for a very long time, the economy exacerbated by the uh, US-Taliban negotiations, culminating with the fall of Kabul. Uh, at the moment, yes, uh, the central government's assets have been frozen uh, by the West. Uh, there have been calls to uh, release those funds. Uh, I'm not quite sure about the estimates, but it could be uh, anywhere between 8 and 10 billion. Uh, there have been calls to release those funds so that um, uh, 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 Afghanistan can um, address the myriad economic problems and the humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, on, on a local level, everyday persons can't access their bank accounts. Um, so they can't take out money for uh, various uh, everyday purposes, right? So they've been resorting to um, experiencing well, you can't resort to experience it. So they've been experiencing poverty, hunger, and they have, um, what we see is they, they've been resorting to selling property uh, or assets to generate some income money to pay for food uh, or uh, essential goods and items like um, fuel and so on and so forth. Uh, you asked about... Um, you know, international motivations in terms of freezing these assets. Well, you had ostensibly a terrorist organization taking over the country. So it makes sense that their uh, assets were uh, uh, frozen. It's not the Taliban's assets, it's the central government's assets. They have taken over the central government now and the, you know, the machinery of state. What you do with frozen assets is a, it's a, it's a separate question, uh, whether that's uh, the international community uh, along with uh, uh, Afghan uh, stakeholders um, who might be in the country or overseas, they're dialoguing with them to try to figure out, and of course with the Taliban, to try to figure out, okay, um, under what conditions can we re-engage with the Taliban and release this money? Um, so that has been, uh, I presume, uh, the focal point of many discussions between Taliban uh, leadership and international actors over the past several weeks and months. Uh, delving deeper into one of the points that you mentioned, the humanitarian crisis. So this has been an important area of concern globally. Uh, while the Taliban claims to have modernized, it has been widely noted that women are still largely excluded from public life. In an interesting development, though, uh, earlier in January 2022, Taliban leaders met with representatives from the United States, France, Britain, Germany, Italy, the European Union and Norway to discuss the question of human rights. Can you tell our listeners about this meeting? And are there any rivalries among major powers uh, over how aid assistance has to be provided? And why are different countries at odds over this issue? Sure. I think the, um, the, the, the issue about um, women's rights is a slightly different topic, although you can bring it under a broader humanitarian discourse. I think the immediate issue is uh, that Afghanistan is on the brink of humanitarian catastrophe. Um, 
depending on you whom, whom you ask, they're already in the thick of it. Um, they're already experiencing famine, um, po- extreme acute poverty, uh, food shortages, uh, um, other essential goods uh, shortages, and so on and so forth. And again, the humanitarian crisis, um, uh, you know, exacerbated by years of severe drought, um, the the COVID pandemic starting in 2020, um, have, you know, uh, worsened uh, the situation. Um, so people's on the ground, individuals and communities are really suffering. Um, so that's the humanitarian crisis that Afghans and the international community are dealing with and need to deal with going ahead. Um, but yes, I mean, you know, if you if you think about it in terms of um, you know intersecting issues, then you know rights related issues uh, are part and part, parcel of that broader rights related uh, conversation, right? Uh, yes, women continue to be denied access to uh, schooling and educational uh, institutions. Um, uh, they're not coming back in numbers. They're denied. Uh, access to um, the workforce, right? Um, so there are those issues, and that has a corollary impact on the economy, right? So if you're not going to have your schools and other institutions open, and if you're going to deny women access to the workforce, then that obviously has uh, a negative effect on the economy. Um, coming back to the uh, humanitarian issue, uh, yes. Um, the Norwegian government uh, has held a multi-party talks um, in uh, uh, Norway uh, in a town just outside of Oslo. Um, so I think that, that you know there have been representatives from the US, um, France, Germany, the UK, uh, Norway, and maybe one or two other countries, uh, which I can't recall. Um, and the, uh, I'm not privy to the agenda of the talks and the talks have only just concluded, like uh, today is Wednesday, we're talking on a Wednesday, uh, the 26th of January, so the talks concluded yesterday. So I'm not privy to the agenda and we need to wait a while to see uh, what was discussed, um, what were the roadblocks in in negotiations, what were the successes and achievements, if any. But but one can make a reasonable um, and educated guess that um, one of the priority issues that were discussed was um, the humanitarian crisis, uh, acute poverty, uh, famine, and how to stave that off. Uh, and I imagine one topic um, at the center of discussions was the uh, uh, topic of uh, those assets that have been free- frozen. Um, the Taliban obviously want those assets uh, unfrozen, they want access to them recently, very recently, actually. Uh, they uh, made it very clear that they would like uh, humanitarian assistance to be channeled via them. Now, this raises a lot of issues and concerns. The Taliban don't have a very tr- good track record um, in terms of uh, catering to their citizenry, right? Uh, we have decades worth of data that suggests they don't really care about their peoples. Um, so um, the, the threat of them siphoning off those monies, whether it's humanitarian assistance money that is um, uh, 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 you know, uh, brought in 
or whether it's those state assets that are unfrozen. There is a legitimate fear that the money won't be going to uh, individuals, communities, and peoples who need it most. Um, and instead, uh, it will only benefit the Taliban military ma machinery, particularly uh, you know, groups like the uh, Haqqani Network. Uh, they will use the money to bolster and cement their power. Uh, and that even some of that money, aid money, assistance money slash state money, could find its way into um, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda hands. Um, so we know that uh, the Taliban have not severed ties with Al-Qaeda. Um, those links, as I've mentioned on your podcast before, uh, those are uh, generational and deep. Uh, uh, there is no evidence to suggest those ties have to be broken. So money can be siphoned off to um, increase their power, to enrich uh, their allies and partners uh, whom they want to work with going forward and, and so on and so forth. And, and the populace of Afghanistan is not going to benefit from the assistance or those unfrozen assets. Um, so this fear, I presume, is on the mind of donor countries, uh, international donor countries, right? Um, so uh, again, one could reasonably assume that uh, several donor countries, if not all, want some kind of monitoring uh, mechanism uh, that tracks how the money, where the money is going, how it is being spent. Uh, they might even use monitoring efforts to uh, perhaps articulate conditions. Um, now, both the policy and the academic debate on conditions-based assistance is uh, hotly contested. Um, there is truth to uh, the argument that the moment you, you know, articulate conditions on uh, humanitarian assistance, it's, it doesn't work, it fails. It, it's actually more harmful. Conditions-based aid is actually an assistance that does more harm than good. However, given the Taliban's track record um, of not really caring about their own peoples and their ties with unsavory characters, you probably do need some kind of mechanism that monitors where the money is going and how it is being spent. I suppose, again, one can make a reasonable guess over here that this, these issues were being discussed in, uh, in Oslo. Yeah? Um, uh, what kind of, should we uh, implement monitoring uh, 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 mechanisms? Should we articulate and implement uh, uh, conditions-based, uh, you know, mechanisms, or maybe even scaffolded and staggered conditions. Remember, I mean, I think, uh, I, uh, you know, people need to understand that even when you impose conditions-based uh, criteria, changes don't happen overnight. It takes time to uh, implement. So what does that mean? If, if, if it takes six months or more to implement changes, um, to the satisfaction of those donor countries, does that mean the people of Afghanistan continue to suffer from the humanitarian catastrophe that is unfolding? So those kinds of questions uh, need to be workshopped. As far as divisions are concerned, in addition to what I've already articulated, as far as the international community and the Taliban is con uh, concerned, is I think uh, if you ask um, NGOs and civil society actors, they will probably say, no, don't 
impose conditions because it's going to be harmful. Um, but yet, uh, it would be uh, foolish not to consider uh, the worst case scenario where it, wherein the money gets siphoned off. So we do need uh, some kind of middle ground between uh, articulating and implementing monitoring mechanisms and you know extreme conditions-based criteria, which aren't going to work. Um, uh, the UN, uh, again, uh, historically, the UN isn't very fond of a conditions-based approach, uh, again, for similar reasons to uh, NGOs and civil society organizations on the ground, because they see that it doesn't necessarily work. But again, the UN doesn't really have a very good track record when it comes to these kinds of uh, uh, activities, uh, whether it was in Iraq or Afghanistan, we know money gets siphoned off. Um, so yeah, so you you see that there are certain actors who uh, might not support a monitoring or conditions-based approach. Other actors would want it, and it's finding the middle ground between the two. Um, from my uh, observations and my own research, I think that approach where you acknowledge uh, the limitations of a conditions-based approach, and yet you uh tell the taliban and put them on notice that look we are going to implement some monitoring uh mechanisms and future uh, uh, assistance might be conditioned on you uh, uh complying with what uh, you know some forms of behavior you know or standard of behavior but what this does i mean at a broader level though what this shows is the leverage is all with the Taliban. If the Taliban get the money without any monitoring or um, um, you know, conditions uh, imposed on, on them, it's a win for them, right? Uh, they can do really whatever they want with that money and get away with it. Uh, and if they fail to secure those monies from international donors, after the international community cites, well, uh, cites that well, the Taliban didn't agree to these monitoring mechanisms, um, and so on and so forth. The, the Taliban can turn around and tell their population, "Look, we tried. We told them. Blame the blame the you know the, the international community for not wanting to help you." So it will only serve their propaganda machine. So in a way, the Taliban have all the leverage, and it's the Afghan people who are obviously uh, going to be the losers in the end. Uh, finally, looking at regional implications, the takeover of the Taliban has provided opportunities for other countries like Pakistan, India, China, and Russia, among others, to play a more significant role in shaping uh, regional dynamics. So in this context, how does the Taliban government view the positions and interests of these countries? And going forward, what are your views on uh, the role that Afghanistan can play in this in the subcontinent? Well, look, I mean, let's start with the very last question, um, the role of Afghanistan in the subcontinent. I think um, they have an invaluable role, whether it's being part and parcel of, you know, the economic landscape of uh, Southwest Asia and, you know, uh, Central Asia, West Asia. I mean, Afghanistan is at the center of all these many countries, right? Uh, China recognizes that. China recognizes that. And that that's why China... To a limited extent, want um, Afghanistan to be part of the uh, One Belt One Road initiative. I think 
Afghanistan's economic prosperity is contingent on how well uh, they become integrated uh, into the economic uh, landscape of um, West Asia, Central Asia, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, however, uh, it's difficult to see at the moment uh, how the regional dynamics will play out. Uh, if you had asked me this question a few months ago, when all, you know, a, there was a lot of conversation around, you know, India, Pakistan, China, and even the Central Asian countries' these roles, uh, it's died down a little bit. Um, uh, I think m- many countries are still playing the waiting game, right? Waiting to see what happens. Um, we know that the Central Asian countries, for for the first time, are playing a more active role uh, in engaging with uh, Afghanistan, and that's a good thing for Afghanistan. So it's neighboring, and all the neighbors uh, are playing a more active role. So that's a good thing. We remain just, it remains to be seen how the Chinese uh, deal with the Taliban. Um, I, I suspect uh, in the months to come when you know, recognition is awarded to the, uh, you know, the Taliban government. Uh, if China gives recognition to the Taliban, I can imagine other countries following suit very quickly, some other countries following suit very quickly. Um, the same goes for Turkey. Turkey is also playing uh, uh, an increased role Um if Turkey provides the Taliban with recognition first, I think it, the Chinese might be pressured to follow suit. And then what we'll see is a domino effect of countries giving the Taliban uh, recognition. Um, and likewise, if the Chinese go first, I think other countries will follow suit as well. Uh, I think the Taliban are aware of this. I think the Taliban recognize that they're position is very strong. They have all the leverage, like I was saying. And um, by giving piecemeal concessions to donors uh, and the international uh, community of states, um, uh, they recognize that in due course, you know, they'll all come onto the same page as the Taliban. Um, And that's exactly what we're seeing from this Norway exercise, right? Um, the Taliban have said, their foreign minister has said, the acting foreign minister has said, this is our attempt to A, uh, be seen on the world stage and to uh, be recognized as the de facto uh, ruling regime of this con- uh, country, in other words, legitimacy, right? So that they see this exercise purely from uh, that angle, so to speak. Now, the Norwegians um, have said, look, just because we've invited them for uh, um, a workshop, uh, uh, you know, um, a diplomatic workshop, it doesn't mean we are uh, giving them any kind of recognition um, or legitimacy, which is not um, entirely accurate. I think by the very fact that you are are bringing them on board. Um, and you are having these incredibly important conversations about staving off an economic and humanitarian catastrophe, you are legitimizing the Taliban. Uh, so I think that the, the, we need, I think we need to be aware of these dynamics, right? 
Um, uh, as far as um, Pakistan is concerned, again, we've heard uh, various reports of the past several weeks and months that, um, you know, there have been uh, some issues around um, Taliban uh, Pakistan uh, relations in the sense that um, some within the Pakistani establishment might uh, feel that you know they they've lost some leverage with the Taliban. Uh, but look, I think those issues have have always been present. Um, the degree to which the Pakistanis and particularly the ISI control and have leverage over the Taliban has always been a hotly contested one, right? They've never completely and fully dominated them, right? There's always been issues. Um, so I wouldn't read too much into any uh, conversation that suggests oh, the, uh, the Pakistanis and Taliban might be at loggerheads with each other or that they're losing their grasp or grip over the Taliban. I think the, I think the facts speak a different truth, which is um, the, the, the relations are strong, uh, as evinced by you know the visit of the chief of the ISI when they when they visited um, and the and the army general too when they visited a uh, uh, Kabul right after the fall of Kabul, right. So those uh, relations and connections are strong. There will obviously be hiccups between those two entities and parties, uh, but uh, I think it, it would be foolish to assume that that relationship is, you know, faltering. Uh, yes, it is true that I think with the coming of the Taliban to power, the Taliban would, would want greater autonomy in how they run the country. Uh, but again, I see those issues being negotiated between the Pakistanis, ISI, and uh, uh, the Taliban in, in, in the future. Look, India has a big role to play, but play. But um, you know, India's been trying different things. Uh, most recently, the Indians wanted to send fifty thousand tons of wheat um, to um, Afghanistan as part and parcel of uh, an effort to address the humanitarian um, uh, 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 catastrophe. Uh, and you know, the Pakistanis blocked the transit of um, that wheat through to uh, Afghanistan, so. We can clearly um, conclude that they are holding um, uh, hostages over here. The Pakistanis are, you know, they're, they're politicizing uh, the catastrophe. Uh, and to be frank, I think the Taliban are doing the same. Uh, you know, they're, they're using the catastrophe as leverage to seek recognition for themselves. Like I said, China, I think, is playing a waiting game. I think they are more concerned about, you know, Etim and potential Uyghur militancy in their territory emanating from individuals and groups or movements who might be seeking refuge and shelter within Afghan territory, right? So those sorts of issues would probably be um, on their mind. I think uh, the Chinese are well aware of the limitations in their relationship with the Pakistanis. And so, for example, we know that there have been incidents in the past where the Pakistanis have supported uh, extremist elements who have gone on to conduct terror attacks within Chinese territory. So um, those are issues to consider, but those are minor uh, in the broader scheme of things in terms of eventually supporting uh, the Taliban. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today, Dr. Rose. 
No, my pleasure. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to chat more if you like, um, or we can always reconvene for another uh, chat on ongoing developments. I mean, the, the, the issue with Afghanistan is, as has always been the case, uh, it, these events are um, fluid, dynamic, things are changing, uh, will continue to change, not just over weeks, but over days. Um, so um, it's important to keep monitoring, but it's difficult also to glean any long-term trends and implications because of this, you know, extreme flux uh, that the country and its peoples are experiencing on the ground. You were listening to South Asia Chat. Tune in every Tuesday and Friday for an analysis of latest developments in the subcontinent. To learn more about our work, you can visit us at isas.nus.edu.sg. You can also follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter.